When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about what the Democrats can do about Brett Kavanaugh when or if they retake the House in November and take control of the Judiciary Committee in January. John Nichols will explain. And we'll also talk about Trump financial fraud, the massive New York Times expose of where Trump's money comes from and the violations of tax laws in his past. The great David K. Johnston will comment. But first, the political power of women's anger. For that, we turn to Rebecca Traster. She writes for New York Magazine and also for Elle. She won the National Magazine Award. She's also written for The Washington Post, The New York Times, and The Nation. Her new book is the political book of the year, at least for me. It's called Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. Rebecca Traster, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, John. The New York Times page one headline about Brett Kavanaugh's testimony last Thursday read, quote, a nominee is rescued by a display of rage. I wonder if you have any comment on that. Yeah, one of the things I write about in the book is whose rage is taken seriously in America as politically valid, politically consequential, as sort of reflectively righteous. And the argument I make in the book, and of course I finished writing this book months before the Kavanaugh hearings, but I write about how in this country the kind of political rage that we do kind of take reflexively seriously is the rage of powerful white men. Our founding kind of lullaby is the founders' rage, right? It's the 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 anger that undergirded the American Revolution. Give me liberty or give me death. Live free or die. The fury that was our national founding. And, of course, the thing that happened then is that those founders who were so angry about being taxed and policed without being represented in government, they they made their angry split from England. And then in creating a new nation, they built the nation on on lack of representation, on the kind of inequities that they were so righteously objecting to, enslaving African-Americans, wiping out the native population, leaving women with all kinds of barriers to full legal, economic, political par- participation. When the rage of those who were left out of the nation's founding and its and its promise of equal representation, have expressed rage that in many ways echoed the founding rage. Many of the people who have objected from the early labor movement, the Lowell Mill girls striking, talked about their anger at poor working conditions, borrowing the language and ideas from the founders, Mum Bet, an enslaved woman who would later be known as Elizabeth Freeman in, in the 18th century in Massachusetts, lived in the home of, a, of an active revolutionary politician she heard the revolutionary rhetoric in her home and she applied it to her own situation, petition for her freedom. Um, her case became the basis for the abolition of slavery in Massachusetts in 1783. 
the the actual angry rhetoric of having been unjustly impinged upon about having faced injustice is is rhetoric that has been voiced by many people who are not powerful white men, but often that is disregarded, marginalized, made to sound hysterical or animalistic or infantile or threatening, depending on who it's coming from. And so in this past couple of weeks during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, we've seen all kinds of examples of that. Uh, the rage of the powerful white man, not just Kavanaugh, but Lindsey Graham, Donald Trump, the members of the Republican Party, all of them powerful white men, fundamentally representing the interests of a white capitalist patriarchy. That rage worked to their benefit. Brett Kavanaugh could go into that hearing room and rage about the injustice that was being done to him. They could talk about the mob. Donald Trump could apologize for the pain that has been inflicted on his family. There was this notion that he had been done wrong. And the fact that he was moved to, to angry and passionate expression only underscored the seriousness of how, how poorly he'd been treated. So Kavanaugh, we could say, performed anger. Dr. Ford took the opposite course a lot of people thought she was very effective at doing that. What do you think? Well, she was, but that's in part because of the way that we're conditioned to hear and respond to anger differently when it comes from different people. So in Kavanaugh's case, that anger, his raised tones and the snarling and fury could be used to amplify how serious he was to, to make his point stronger. Had Christine Blasey Ford employed that kind of anger, yelling or making faces, talking back to people, it would have badly undermined her point. Women aren't permitted to use anger as a weapon to amplify their voices or their points of view. Instead, we're told that anger, if we express ourselves angrily, it will detract from the seriousness with which we are taken. And so she she performed in a voice and in a mode that was the acceptable mode for women, for white middle class women. She was polite. She was deferential, solicitous, quiet, measured, rational. She called on science. She didn't express any fury. Um, she often talked about how she just wanted to be collegial. And that was the mode of expression that she was permitted if she wanted to be taken seriously. And she did it. Dr. Ford wasn't angry, but there were some other people who were angry, the two women in the elevator to start with. The two women in the elevator, all the protesters who'd taken over Washington. And, and, it, and that protest movement had started before before Dr. Ford's allegations became known to the public. And those protesters in the Senate gallery yelling about abortion and health care repeal in the first round of hearings for Brett Kavanaugh were referred to by members of the Senate Judiciary Committee as loudmouths and um, experiencing hysteria. That was Orrin Hatch and, and Ben Sass, respectively. They were kind of made made out to be a nuisance. Orrin Hatch said we shouldn't have to put up with this about the protesters who were screaming during Kavanaugh's initial hearings. And then, of course, after the assault allegations were made, there was a whole new round and a new population of protesters who flooded the Capitol telling their stories, many of them telling really difficult stories of trauma and assault, including the two women, Ana Maria Archila and Maria Gallagher, who confronted Jeff Flake in the elevator. There were other survivors, Alison Turcos, um, Jess Morales, who confronted Ted Cruz, Alison Turcos, confronted Joe Manchin. There were women who yelled throughout the vote, and they were referred to by one Fox News host as screaming animals. And then, of course, Donald Trump and Marco Rubio have referred to them as a mob, an angry mob. Trump compared them to arsonists. That's a very clear view that we get of how angry expression can be used against women, in this case, the protesters. But 
anger can be used for a powerful white man, in this case, Brett Kavanaugh and his confirmation to the Supreme Court for a lifetime appointment. There's a familiar argument about women's anger. It goes like this. By itself, women's anger can be destructive. Its value comes when it is transformed into something else, namely political action. That's what makes it important. That's what makes it worthwhile. What do you think? Well, I think that there's a lot of value in the ability to express anger without fear of censure and recrimination. And many women, of course, don't have that ability to just freely express their anger. So I think there's a value in the expression of anger simply because it's part of a full range of human emotion and response that we sort of discourage in women, but don't discourage in the same ways in men, especially powerful white men. And so I'm sort of for the value of anger or at least the ability to express it freely and not have to stuff it down, you know, on a couple of fronts. I also do think that often anger is at the initial sort of beating heart start of a political or social movement. Certainly, if you look back at the the social movements that have radically transformed this country, starting with the abolition and suffrage movements through the labor movement, the women's movement, the civil rights movement, the LGBT movement, often at the beginning, there have been women who were angry, whose anger proved catalytic um, in forming connections and, and developing coalitions that led to the kind of organizing and work, sometimes over decades or centuries, that helped to change America, I think, for the better. A lot of women's anger has gone into progressive causes, but not always. Today, we see that not all white women in particular are angry about Trump. In fact, a majority of white women voted for him. That famous figure, 52 percent of white women voters voted for Trump. Your book has some fascinating data on how women's voting reveals a stark partisan divide between married women and never married women. Let's go over those figures for a minute. Um, There was a study done by a group of political scientists who found that the closer white women were to marriage, the more likely they were to vote for Donald Trump. So married white women were the category that was most likely to vote for Donald Trump. And then I believe widowed white women, divorced and separated white women, and then never married never married white women were the category of white women who women who actually voted for Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. So this is something that actually ties to the last book that I published, All the Single Ladies, about the ways that the ways that white patriarchy works to make all kinds of people dependent on it. And among the advantages um, and enticements offered to white women via their associations with white men, you know, is, is white supremacy the proximal power of being close to white men, um, being dependent on them, often via marriage. There are all kinds of other ways in which white women are dependent on men emotionally, financially, professionally. But there is some data that suggests that the closer white women are to white men via their marriages, the more likely they are to vote for conservative policies that fundamentally benefit and uphold a white patriarchy. But this has always been true. This is not new in the 2016 election, which is a point I'm really anxious to drive home. It is not. It should not have been a surprise that white women voted for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. In fact, they did slightly better Uh, in 2016 than they had in 2012, when 56% of them voted for Mitt Romney over Barack Obama. Since they've been measuring, which is since 1952, white women have voted for Republicans in presidential elections every year but two, 1992 and 1996. 
the fact that white women have often been deployed and have channeled the anger of other white women on behalf of a white capitalist patriarchy is another element of this book. Phyllis Schlafly led an army of angry white women in her crusade to defeat the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, in, and she succeeded in 1982. So the point is not that women's anger is always progressive. It is that it is very often politically potent in a way that we don't give it credit for. We've been talking here about white women. What about women who are not white? Well, non-white women find their anger marginalized in very specific and noxious ways. The caricature of an angry of the angry black woman is used against black women so frequently and to such damaging effect. It can take a lot of forms. One is an almost cartoonish marginalization of the angry black woman, the caricature of the neck snapping sapphire, sassy black woman who is used either, that caricature is used to either comedically dismiss the often extremely righteous anger of of black women to sort of make it mean less. The other thing is if, if when black women actually do come close to closer to power, their anger is cast as threatening, as terrifying, as, as militaristic. And you can see that with what happened to to Michelle Obama in the 2008 election. Um, Michelle Obama, a sort of purveyor of of cheerful energy, issued a, a very mild appraisal of the country's history of racism and was quickly labeled the angry black woman. She was on magazine covers appearing to scowl or yell, why is Michelle Obama so angry? She was dubbed Mrs. Grievance. She was cast as this caricature of angry black womanhood. And in that case, when she was on the verge of being the first black woman to move into the White House as a first lady, she was cast as a threat, as a kind of subversive, to the point that she was caricatured on the cover of The New Yorker, um, you know, in a kind of black power pose. The other more recent example of this is Maxine Waters, who is actually given both treatment. Maxine Waters has, and I write a lot about her history in the book, of having always seen and, and articulated the value of mass anger in the face of oppression. This goes back to the 90s and the unrest that happened in the wake of the Rodney King verdicts in Los Angeles when she was a new congresswoman. And people were calling that unrest riots and referring to the to to those engaging in protest and looting as thugs and she was out there back then saying this is an insurrection this is not a riot they have reason to be angry i'm not i'm i don't want people to get hurt but i'm not going to tell people not to feel angry she has always been a real advocate for the the validity of mass rage in reaction to inequality and often violent injustice. And in the Trump administration, she, of course, has been vocally angry about the abuses of the Trump administration. And on the one hand, she gets treated as, in some ways, affirmatively, but as a kind of meme, a cartoon. She does the the Auntie Maxine looking over her glasses or saying, I'm reclaiming my time, becomes a sort of useful communicative device, often for, for women who aren't themselves black and who aren't expressing their own anger, but are often using the image of Maxine Waters to do it for them. At the same time, in the news media, she is vilified and in the right-wing media made out to be really dangerous. She says something like, I'm going to go get Trump. And and not just the right-wing media, but mainstream media asks her, are you talking about killing the president? Which, of course, she wasn't. But there's a way of blowing up black women's anger to appear as a threat. 
One last thing. I'd like to talk just for a minute about Tears of Rage. You have this Mm -hmm. wonderful part of your book where you quote an older woman telling you, never let them see you crying. What was that about? Well, I think that one of the most profoundly misunderstood expressions of rage in women is tears because so many other open expressions of fury are discouraged or discounted. Many of us sort of instinctively, and in part because it's so frustrating to not be able to say the ways we're angry in an angry way because we know that it will somehow redound negatively against us. I think many of us instinctively turn to tears and especially there's, there's a racial component here. I think this is especially true if you're a white woman um, who within a white patriarchy, people are more ready to envision and cast as traditionally feminine and vulnerable uh, and to whom the power structure is more likely to extend sympathy or imagined offers of protection. I think that tears can be read as vulnerability and, and make women's dissatisfaction more appealing. And so tears are often understood as a sign of weakness or simple grief. And they very often are grief, but very often they're blind rage. And I don't think that that is widely understood enough. And what my boss once said to me, she pulled me aside and she said, I was just crying at work. And this was not somebody with whom I had a close relationship. She pulled me aside and sort of said, don't let them see you crying. They don't know you're furious. They think that you're upset and they'll be pleased that they got to you. There's lots more great stuff in this book, including sections on a time for rage and the exhilaration of activism. We'll leave it to listeners to find that for themselves in Rebecca Traster's book. It's called Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. Rebecca, thank you for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Thanks so much. Support from Start Making Sense comes from Swing Left. We've said it here many times. It all starts with the House. If progressive candidates win in just 23 swing districts on November 6th, we can take back a majority in the House of Representatives and finally put a check on Donald Trump and the people in power who are supporting him. That's why nearly half a million people have signed up to volunteer with Swing Left. When you join Swing Left at swingleft.org sense, you'll be connected immediately with other volunteers in your area who are working to win the race in a nearby swing district. You'll find out where and how you can make the most impact. We can flip the house. It's really that simple. Each of us has the power to change our country and to save our democracy, but only if we do the work to take back the house. So don't just vote this year, volunteer. Join the grassroots movement that's changing things in this year's midterm election. So sign up now at swingleft.org sense. That's S-E-N-S-E. Now it's time to talk about Donald Trump's money and where it came from. That's the subject of a massive expose published by the New York Times last week. For comment, we turn to David K. Johnston. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who wrote for the New York Times and the L.A. Times. He's the author of seven books, including The Making of Donald Trump and, most recently, It's Even Worse Than You Think, What the Trump Administration is Doing to America. We talked about it here a few months ago. He's editor of dcreport.org, and he knows more about Trump's finances than practically anyone alive. David K. Johnston, welcome back. Well, thank you for having me, John. 
Well, that special Sunday section of the New York Times had 11 pages of text and documentation on what they called suspect tax schemes that helped preserve what they called a vast inherited fortune that Trump inherited from his father, Fred. What do you consider their most important findings? Well, the New York Times, in the most extraordinary thing, I mean, I, I can't imagine uh, how what it would have taken if I had wanted to write these words when I was there and get them past all the editors, uh, said that the sitting president of the United States engaged in, quote, outright fraud, mm-hmm. end quote. It is beyond question now from the documents, the 100,000-plus pages of mostly private family Trump documents backed up by various public records that they got, and the interviews and the other work they've done, that two things can be said. Donald Trump in particular and the Trump family as a whole are criminal tax cheats. They won't ever be indicted for the crimes the Times described because the statute of limitations for criminal prosecution is only six years, and the Times covers a half century, basically, from the 50s to the turn of the century. And, and the, by the way, the, the, they can be gone after for civil fraud for every single dollar. And Donald has already had two civil tax fraud trials, and he lost both of them. Secondly, Donald Trump's claim that he is a self-made man and his claim that he's worth $10 billion are complete and utter nonsense, and they've been demolished now by the Times. And that second story, however, isn't getting through. Forbes magazine just came out saying Donald Trump's wealth has fallen from $4 billion to $3 billion. And every day on TV and on the radio, I hear uh, people in news saying the billionaire president or the multi-billionaire president. There is not now, there never has been, John, a scintilla of verifiable evidence that Trump has a billion-dollar net worth. And during the campaign, when he told us all he was worth more than $10 billion, and I kept saying that's nonsense, you know, it's not true, once he became president, he had to file his financial disclosure form. As I report in the, uh, it's even worse than you think, they asked to be able to file the statement without signing it under penalty of perjury. Mm. And the Office of Government Ethics said, no, you have to sign that statement. Everybody has to sign under penalty of perjury. So the statement shows a net worth not of $10 billion, but of $1.4 billion. What, what more do you need to know that Trump just makes this stuff up? And even the $1.4 billion is not to be believed. For example, he says his two Scottish golf courses are each worth more than $50 million, but we just got their new financial reports. Yet again, for another year, they've lost millions of dollars. They're not worth $50 million. They may be literally worth less, except for real estate if you get permission to redevelop them. Uh, His businesses are losing business all over the place, and the rules for the presidential disclosure do not require Trump to disclose all sorts of loans that he is obligated for. If we had a real net worth statement on Donald Trump, it would probably show he's worth a few hundred million dollars. That's all. Most of the New York Times report was about various strategies by which Trump's father, Fred, transferred assets and cash to his children. The Times said that Trump himself received at least $413 million in today's dollars 
from right. his father's real estate empire. How do rich fathers uh, do that? How did Fred Trump manage to transfer $413 million to his son Donald? Well, you do it by lying and cheating and being very calculated. Uh, let me give you a real simple example. If you live in a state like California or New York and you give your child a car and you put down for sales tax purposes that it's worth, say, $1,000, but it's really worth 20000 They will catch you and they will send you a bill because all of those records are digitized. They're electronic. And they have been for years and years and years. But if it's real estate, those records are not digitized. They're held by individual county governments not by, and sometimes townships and cities, depending on where you live in the country. So what you do is you play with the values of the property. At one, in one, one of the, the transfers of Fred Trump real estate to his children, he gave them more than 1,000 apartments. They valued it at an unbelievable discount. Say you want to give your child a house worth $500,000. Well, what's the value of that house? It's not like a stock where at the end of the day you know what it's selling for. So maybe it's worth 550000 maybe it's worth 450000 but it's in a range around a half a million dollars. The Trumps would have valued that house at $30,000, six cents on the dollar. Mm. And they got away with it because the IRS doesn't have those records, doesn't pursue them. I have an affidavit uh, filed in a federal court case in Sacramento years ago in which the IRS said that when it comes to gifts of real estate by wealthy people to their heirs, heirs their descendants, the lowest rate of cheating in America is in Ohio, where 85% of the gifts are undervalued. And in many states, the cheating rate is 100%. Everybody cheats. So guess what? No big surprise. Donald Trump and Fred Trump and Robert Trump and Judge, federal judge Marianne Barry Trump, they didn't get caught. Well, they stole from us about a half a billion dollars. All of the super rich use these uh, tricky tax avoidance strategies. There's a whole industry of financial advisors yep. and lobbyists who, who work on this undervaluing assets that are transferred to children. Is what Trump did really any different from other very rich people? It's very different. You know, I spent the 13 years I was at the New York Times as their tax reporter and exposing so many tax shelters that I was called the, the de facto chief tax enforcement officer of the U.S. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between aggressive, creative devices to avoid taxes and what the Trumps did, which was flat-out fraud. They used invoicing schemes, or they artificially inflated the prices of things to transfer money to the children, and by the way, to also rip off poor people renting rent-stabilized or rent-controlled apartments from the Trumps by justifying higher rents or the government if it was paying the rent on the behalf of these poor people. Back to my example of a half-million-dollar house. If you say the house is worth 450000 you know, that's not criminal by any stretch. But when you say it's worth $30,000, six cents on the dollar, that's criminal. They knew it was criminal. It's uh, why they hid this stuff. And it's why we absolutely must see Donald Trump's tax returns in this century, every single one of them, not just the two pages that I got for his 2005 return, which, by the way, showed his use of a, uh, an illegal tax shelter so odious that when the Republicans in Congress found out about it, it took them weeks, just weeks, to pass a law to shut it down. But you know what Congress does all the time when they catch one of these tax shelters, like when I was exposing them? What do they they do? shut them down, but if you were already in, they let you keep your ill-got money. Yeah. 
So it's as if we had a law that said, well, we're going to declare bank robbery a crime tomorrow, but if you robbed a bank yesterday, well, it's okay. You can keep the money. The New York Times also got Trump's 1995 tax records where he claimed a loss of $916 million. Losses can be carried forward as deductions. Uh, The New York Times says deducting that meant he could have avoided all federal income taxes for the next 18 years. Is that right? And, And do you think that the $916 million loss is legit? Well, uh, the 18 years is, is sort of their calculation. Uh, the, the better way to put it is he could have avoided all income taxes on the next $916 million of income. Yeah. And, no, it was totally illegit. It's the very tax shelter that was shut down in which I showed how he, uh, by the year 2005, had used up all but $815 million of that tax deduction. So he had about $101 million left by the year 2006. But here's the outrageous part of this. Donald Trump told me in 1991 day, you know, he was worth $3 billion. And I looked at him and said, Donald, I don't believe you. And he's like, what? And, and I said, Donald, you can't pay your bills. There are all these, these vendors and merchants and everyone who aren't being paid. I mean, it, it, I can pay any bill that gets presented to me, even though I'm just a newspaper reporter, certainly within a, a few days. I'm going to have to borrow the money, but I can pay the bill. You should be able to sell a piece of property or have cash on hand if you're really a billionaire. Paying your bills should not ever be an issue. And he just told me I didn't know what I was talking about. By the way, later that same day, he told another reporter he was worth not $3 billion, but $5 billion. <laughs> Well, the, the, what he did then was he couldn't pay back his bankers. The state of New Jersey Casino Control Commission took Donald's side against the bankers to force them to give up almost a billion dollars that he owed them. And what the casino authorities did is they said, well, if you want to foreclose on Mr. Trump, you will own lovely hotels uh, on the Atlantic City boardwalk and marina, but you won't have a casino license. Now, that's not how the law is supposed to work, by the way, at all. But they ignored the law, and they took his side because, after all, he employs thousands of people in New Jersey, and the banks, with two minor exceptions, were all from outside of New Jersey. So if you're a New Jersey politician, what do you care about bankers in, 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 uh, in Berlin and Chicago? Yeah. Well, Donald then took the losses the banks had deducted on their tax returns and took them for himself. Mm. He double deducted it. When the New York Times report was published, Donald Trump released a brief statement saying all of this was old news. Isn't that true in part? Isn't Trump referring to your investigations and your reporting on his money? No. and I mean, I'll tell you, yes, in the sense that I certainly for years and Tim O'Brien and Gwenda Blair and the late Wayne Barrett have all done little pieces of this. This this project is light years beyond where we went. It is new. And it, let me let me be very clear. I've been at this for 52 years. I'm the former president of the Investigative Reporters and Editors Association. This is the most masterful investigative reporting I have ever seen. This is just runs miles beyond where we were, and there's not a single technical glitch. Every time I read a story about accounting, business practice, tax law, I almost always wince at some page that the reporter got it wrong. 14,000 words, there's not a single comma that I quarreled with reading that, and I haven't seen anybody else point to it. And you'll notice the White House hasn't denied the story. 
All they've said is, oh, it's old news. Donald said the other day, it's all public records. Of course it's not. It's mostly private records. I didn't have those private records. I, I would have you know, happily written the story a long time ago. The Times had the money, the resources, and in David Barstow and Susan Craig and Russ Butner, the reporters with the diligence over 18 months to get people to give them documents. And I have nothing but praise for them. This is the single greatest investigative news report anyone has ever written, and I'm in a particularly unique position to be able to judge it. One last question. Is this pretty much now the whole story? Do we know what we need to know about Trump's finances and where they came from? Or what's next in this story? Well, assuming that the, the Democrats actually turn out to vote, and we get a new Congress. And I don't think that's at all certain. I mean, I think there are plenty of people in this country who would rather stay home and watch TV or play golf uh, than go vote, uh, in which case, you know, we are headed to becoming a tyranny, as the cover story of the New York Review of Books for October 25th that just came out uh, shows. Um, but assuming that the, the Democrats take control of the House, the Senate, or both, there will immediately be investigations into Trump's finances. Congress has the right to his tax returns. They will demand those returns. They will, they will conduct investigations. And, John, my guess is if you and I are talking a year from now, we're going to be discussing what's in Trump's more recent tax returns, not, uh, you know, what do we need to know, uh, 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 how do we get them. Um, it, it, the Democrats will absolutely go after this. And just keep this in mind. In the 1970s, we had two crooks at the head of our government. Spiro Agnew resigned as vice president of the United States and pled guilty to a tax charge over what were basically bags of groceries that he didn't report as bribes and as income. <laughs> bags of groceries. I mean, there was more to it, but that's what he pled to. Richard Nixon, who famously said, I am not a crook, was an unindicted co-conspirator, and his tax lawyer served time in prison for backdating documents so that Nixon could take a deduction for donating his papers. Those are pebbles compared to the mountain of tax cheating by the Trumps. We have a criminal in the White House. People need to vote. They need to make sure the votes are honestly counted, and they need to support a thorough, professional, detailed congressional investigation. And if it warrants it, Donald Trump needs to not only be removed from office, he needs to be indicted, prosecuted, and if convicted, sent to prison. David K. Johnston, his new book is It's Even Worse Than You Think, What the Trump Administration is Doing to America. You can read him at dcreport.org. David, thanks so much for doing this. You are the best. Thank you. Next up, the Democrats are likely to win majority control of the House of Representatives on November 6th. What can they do about Brett Kavanaugh then? Should they do anything? For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent and author most recently of the book Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you, my friend. Well, when the new Congress convenes in January, the House Judiciary Committee 
will be chaired by Democrat Jerry Nadler. He says he wants to open an, an investigation into Brett Kavanaugh and what happened and what didn't happen at his confirmation hearings. What do you think they should focus on? You correctly say that Nadler's interested in this. I, I think if the word wants to do it is, is perhaps the inappropriate term, at least as you look at how Nadler talks about it. He feels he has a duty to do it. And that's very important because there will be pushback. There will be some Democrats who, you know, in the sort of classic model, want to put everything behind and supposedly look forward. But what Nadler has said is that the Senate failed to do its job. It didn't exercise the, the baseline responsibilities in a system of separated powers where you have checks and balances. You cannot give advice and consent without adequate information. And you cannot give advice and consent unless you have explored the most serious issues that have arisen. And so what Nadler and others are talking about is looking at a variety of issues that the Senate simply did not examine. Some of those will very possibly relate to the testimony of uh, Dr. Ford as regards Brett Kavanaugh. That is, a, that is a possibility because there was so much there that was unexamined. But there's also something else which could become central to this. And frankly, if they do go forward, should be central to it. And that is the documented evidence, you know, that's, that's really overwhelming at this point, that Brett Kavanaugh repeatedly lied to the Senate Judiciary Committee, starting back during the George W. Bush presidency. It's almost, you're really talking about 15 years of lying under oath and of participating in schemes to undermine the authority and the functionality of the Senate as a body that examines nominations for judicial posts and ultimately confirms or rejects them. It is something that the Senate Judiciary Committee should have examined and in fact should still be examining, but Chuck Grassley has refused to do so. And so Jerry Nadler, I think, is, is really essentially saying, he is willing to follow his oath as a member of Congress and as the chair of a key committee should he become the chair of judiciary after the election. You talked about the Democrats who say this is a bad idea. Their main argument is that impeachment, if the, if the House Judiciary Committee were to pass articles of impeachment against Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh, would then go to the Senate for a trial, and the standard there is the same as impeaching the president, a two-thirds vote to convict. The Democrats will not control two-thirds of the Senate, so they will not win a vote to impeach Brett Kavanaugh. And therefore, some argue, there's no point. What's the point if, of doing something you're going to lose? Do you think there's a point of bringing articles of impeachment against Brett Kavanaugh if they're going to lose a trial vote in the Senate? Ask Richard Nixon if articles of impeachment in the House matter. Great answer. Impeachment should not be a political calculation. Impeachment 
should be a active duty under the Constitution of the United States if you feel that someone has in their official capacity, whether that be in their current capacity or previous, taken actions that are at odds with the Constitution, at odds with the good of the republic, you act, you investigate, and if that investigation leads to at least some sense of confirmation of the high crimes or misdemeanors, that very broad definition given by the founders, then you, you impeach. You, you vote for articles of impeachment. They come out of the Judiciary Committee generally and then are taken up by the whole of the House of Representatives. And, you know, if you sit there and you say, oh, well, we can't do this because you know, Chuck Grassley won't like it or Lindsey Graham will throw a fit. That isn't really the way the founders intended for it to work. If the articles are sufficiently damning and are sufficiently well-documented, the trial in the Senate will become, you know, would become a big deal. And you, at that point, might see some folks step up and do the right thing. It's not guaranteed, of course. I know the hyper-partisanship of the moment. But I will remind you that lying under oath to the, to the Senate, to the Judiciary Committee, is something that federal judges have been impeached for. You know, the final analysis of this, I have long believed that the power of impeachment, which I wrote a book about, is, is much greater than simply the process. It is not simply this, you know, well, House does this, Senate does that. And then you have these different votes. It's also just the, the literal act of faith in the Constitution, this sense that, you know, it's, it says we're supposed to act, we will act. If the other chamber fails to act, that is their failure. History will look on them in a, in a very bad way. But you don't not do it because of a political calculus. And I'm really not a big fan of the hyper-caution of Democrats as regards accountability issues. The fact of the matter is that there are times when it is a duty and a necessity to hold someone to account. And if it is true, as Russ Feingold, the former member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, says, that Brett Kavanaugh has never appeared before the committee without lying. If it is true, as Patrick Leahy, the senior member of the United States Senate, the senior member of the Judiciary Committee says that there is clear and and undebatable evidence that Brett Kavanaugh intentionally set out to mislead the committee. If what a group of former top aides on the committee say that it is clear that Brett Kavanaugh dealt in stolen materials uh, in order to undermine and manipulate the confirmation process for judges when he was working for George W. Bush and with Karl Rove, then those are impeachable offenses. And, and you shouldn't run away from it. You should focus on it because it might just possibly be a way to tell the American people that you take the system of checks and balances a little more seriously than does Mitch McConnell. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, John. Always great to have you on the show. It's a pleasure. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation. 
This week, Dave talks about sports and sexual assault with Brenda Tracy. She's the nation's leading advocate in the fight against college football's rape culture. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.